Hopefully today we will um, we will get into the word and we will see some some depth of how we should live. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again, Lord. Beautiful day. A building full of beautiful people. God and saints, according to your gospel, born-again believers, Lord, I thank you for each one of them, and I pray, God, that this will be a message to your people. God, I pray that it will be encouraging to their souls. It will help us. It will stir up the spirit inside us, and we will have a desire to glorify and magnify you to look to you in times of trouble, to look to you in times that are good, to look to you in our jobs, our businesses, our homes, our families. God, that we would just turn to you today. And God, I also pray that anyone who has not bowed a knee to you, that you have not granted repentance, that this message would penetrate the heart they would see the the magnitude of Christ, that they would see the glory of Christ, that their eyes would be opened and that they could not deny that any longer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're still in the first chapter of Philippians. If you were here the last time, you know that Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter under the control of Rome. Um, And the saints at Philippi are greatly concerned for Paul. And he gets word of this, and that's part of the reason that he's writing this letter. They are concerned with his imprisonment. They're concerned with what's going to happen now. And I'm sure there's a little bit of a situation there where they're like, well, just do this so that you can get out of prison. Just, you know, whatever it is, do whatever you can to stay alive. And so there's a little bit of a warning there for Christians. When persecution comes, there are going to be people that are going to say, well, just recant. Just, just act like a certain way. Just, just, you know, slide under so you can get this pressure off of you. That's a, that's a pretty common thing. Even other Christians will say that when they're not in your position. But our job as Christians is to obey the Holy Spirit in those situations. And sometimes it may mean you're going to be in prison. It may mean you're going to face certain consequences. So remember that. So this is what Paul's response to them is, is the letter of Philippians. So he's, he's writing to comfort them. He's the, this is amazing. Paul's the one in prison, and he's writing to comfort them who are still free. But he's comforting them in God's sovereignty, even in his trials. And remember, he told them, because of his situation, the whole Roman guard heard the gospel. If I wouldn't have went to prison, these guys wouldn't have heard the gospel. Now they've all heard it. They've all heard the gospel. Um, Because of his imprisonment, many other Christians have been emboldened. And that's the amazing thing about Christianity as well, right? You see somebody else being persecuted... And it gives you a stirring to go do what they're doing. It's the exact opposite of what the enemy is trying to accomplish through persecution. But with God, he uses that 
for his glory and to stir up his people. And that's what Paul said. These other men, these other women, they've been emboldened. Um, And because of that, many have heard about the gospel. And we concluded in verse 18 where he said, because of this, Christ is preached. And then this, I will rejoice. I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. Paul is in prison in a terrible situation, but yet he is rejoicing because the name of Christ is being magnified. So now we're going to look at verse 19. We're going to start in verse 19. We're going to look at just what does that mean? So he says in verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this is going to turn out for his deliverance. And there's an important thing in here as to how that is possible. How is this going to turn out for his deliverance? By prayer. By your prayers, he says. You guys praying for me in Philippi and the other churches are praying for me that I know that God is going to work this out for my deliverance and for his glory. And then he says, by the spirit of Jesus Christ. But before we jump to conclusions on what exactly deliverance means, we have to read on. Okay, it's going to be for his deliverance. That It's almost like a trick statement there. What exactly do you mean? When they're first reading it, they would probably think, oh, Paul is prophesying he's going to be released from prison. We can relax. But that's not what he's saying here. So we've got to read on, we're gonna, and we're going to get into that. So verse 20, the, I'm going I'm to break verse 20 into three parts here. The first part of verse 20 says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Earnest expectation and hope that, I, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. And let's talk about the word shame for a minute. Shame is, is a horrible sense of guilt or failure. So all of us in here have experienced shame at some point. You've failed something that was important to you and you felt shameful for it. You failed God and you felt shameful for it. Here's an interesting thing. What you love will determine what you feel shame about. If you don't care about something... And you fail in it, there's no shame. You don't have shame. You might put on a fake deal because you know other people care about it. But in your heart, you're not shameful if you fail at something you don't care about. If you don't love somebody and you do them wrong, you don't have true shame over that. Right? If you desire, so what you love is what you feel shame about. So if you desire men to love you, and by men I mean Mankind, you want, the, you want the love of the world, if you desire that, then you will feel shame when they don't. This is a big thing in our world right now. There is a huge desire, there is a huge seeking of man for the love of other men. There is a huge seeking for humans, I should say, and the love of other humans. They want the praise, the respect, the adoration from everybody else. And when they don't get it, there is a shame in them. Why? Because they love that praise. 
this is a it's a it's a problem in our culture. Happiness is a problem in our culture. We have never, in the, as far as I know, in the history of the world, pursued happiness as much as we do right now. We have never put more emphasis on you just should do whatever makes you happy. You deserve to be... Watch TV sometime and see how many times in a TV show they talk about, well, you deserve to be happy. You will be happy. Whatever makes you happy. Follow your heart. Whatever makes you happy. It's all about happiness. But yet the problem is happiness is fleeting. They're seeking after happiness and there is no end to that. It's like doing a drug. There's no way you'll satisfy that. And so we're seeing that. And so when you desire that, you will feel shame when you don't. And I think that's probably... So we've never seen more emphasis put on happiness. We've also never seen more depression. It's true. There's more depressed people living in our country right now than there ever have been. But yet there's more emphasis on making everybody happy than there ever has been. Something's not working. Why? Because happiness isn't found by looking at yourself. And so when you, but when you desire that, you will feel shame when it doesn't happen. If you love earthly possessions, if that is your desire, then you will feel shame when your house or your car or your etc., etc., whatever it is, isn't nice, isn't as nice or as big or as fancy as the next guy. Right? And we've all felt this. Don't act like we haven't. We've all experienced this on some level. How much love you've put on earthly possessions varies from person to person, but we've all battled this. Right? We've all battled keeping up with the Joneses, Joneses in some way or another. Maybe it's not a house, but maybe it's guns. Maybe it's, uh, you know, something else. Maybe it's your kids and how successful they are. We all battle that at some point. Well, if that's what your love is placed in, then that is what you will feel shame when it doesn't happen. Parents, I'll, I'll give you a word of caution. Your children may not all grow up to be neurosurgeons. There's a limit. They may not want to be a neurosurgeon. They may want to be a mechanic or a bricklayer or a nurse or whatever it is. They, they have this own path that they will decide later. But there's a, there's a desire, I think, there's a love of parents to see their children succeed. And that's a good thing. You want to see your children succeed. Don't get me wrong. Of course. You want to educate them. You want to push them. You want to do those things. But if that is your true love, and then they don't follow what you wanted them to, there's a shame. That's where shame comes from. If you desire to be well known among mankind, whether it's Christian or not Christian, then you feel shame when people don't know you. Right? There are some people that have a strong love or a desire to be famous, be well known. It's a natural desire of our flesh to be popular. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted, this happens. 
I, can, I know a lot of introverted type kids that want to be TikTok famous. They don't want to have to deal with the people in person, but they want to be famous on TikTok or on Instagram or whatever. They want to be, they want to get a gazillion likes on their social media pages. That is a huge thing right now. How many likes can you get on this? How many friends, followers can you get? All of that. But then the problem is you feel shame when it doesn't happen. That's what shame is. That's where it comes from. It comes from what you love. So what Paul is saying here is he has a desire to not be ashamed of how he acts or who he is. So what is the opposite of shame? You can shame somebody. The opposite of shaming somebody is to honor them, right? If you feel shame, the opposite of that is to feel honored. Honor is the opposite of shame. If you are put to shame, the opposite is to be honored. But that's not Paul's desire. Paul's desire is not to be honored. You can read through all of his writings and see that very clearly. But look at the next part of verse 20. It says, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. With all boldness, as always. Paul's desire is not that he would be honored but that Christ would be. And so when he's talking about shame, he's not talking about his own shame. He gladly accepts his own shame. He's in prison. He gave up all kinds of honor and glory for himself. Paul was extremely educated. One of the highly, most highly educated men of his time, being both Roman and Jew. He was a Jew by heritage. He was Roman by birth. He was a Roman citizen. That was a big deal then. He had it all. Riches, no problem. Clout, absolutely. Rubbing elbows with all the big wigs. He was big time. He gave that all up. It wasn't his own shame that he was worried about. He was worried about bringing shame on Christ. And so he is magnifying. So his concern is not that he would be honored but that Christ would be. That's his mission. His mission, Paul's, his writing is always that Christ would be magnified, exalted, honored. He would be shown to be magnificent. He says, I count everything in Philippians 3.8. Later on, he says, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why? Why is this the case? It's, this is the reason. This is the reason you want to see Christ magnified, or Paul does. Just as what you determine, or what you love, determines what you find shame in, the same is true for what you want to see honored. Listen to this. Whenever something is of tremendous value to you, Whenever you cherish something because of its uniqueness or its power or its beauty, there is an inevitable longing that you draw others' attention to it so that they can share your high regard for it. You tell me that's not true. You find anybody and you listen to what they talk about most, and that is what they're trying to convince you of. You find somebody that is passionate about racing cars, 
They can tell you details that you, they're using words you don't know. And they're telling you details of something that happened 10 years ago. Why? They love car racing. Maybe it's dirt track. Maybe it's NASCAR. But they want you to see it for the same thing. I'm pretty good at it with food. I cannot believe when people don't believe me when I'm telling you this place is the best place to eat. Right? And we can do it on small occasions. But when it comes to something that somebody's extremely passionate about, there is a desire within you to make other people be passionate about it. It's part of my job as a teacher. I am passionate about agriculture. I teach ag. That's why I teach ag. I'm also passionate about kids. That's why I'm a teacher. I want to see them succeed. I want to see them do good things. But I also want to pass on this love for agriculture that I have. Why? It's kind of important. We all eat. We're going to need to eat. And I want people that can add. So that passion, that love I have for that is what I pass on. Well, here we have Paul. So listen to that statement again. Whenever you, something is of tremendous value to you, when you, when you cherish something because of its uniqueness or its power or its beauty, there is a longing that you draw others' attention to it. And that is Paul's secret. That's the secret behind everything that he does. He wants and yearns for others to see the beauty of Christ the way he sees Christ. He wants and yearns for others to see the magnitude of Christ. And I pray that we would all be the same. We should all be the same. We should follow Paul's example. That we would have the same desire to see Christ magnified and the same fear of bringing shame on the name of Christ. And we need to think about that when we do, when we act, when we do life. Is what I'm doing going to bring shame on the name of Christ? What if it's questionable? We're in a cultural period where there's some transitions going on on what's acceptable and what's not. What if it's one of those gray areas? <laughs> really? If there's any kind of chance it could bring shame on the name of Christ, then I would suggest... Let's not do it, right? Shouldn't that be our goal? But if there's any chance that it's going to magnify the name of Christ, it's going to bring glory to the name of Christ, then we should do that. And then the last part of that verse is kind of going to be the key to the rest of the sermon. It's kind of going to be the focus on what the rest of this chapter, or at least this section says. It says, whether by life or by death. And so here he adds another element. Remember, it said he talked about his deliverance. And here's where the, the question comes in. It's not being delivered from prison necessarily. He's going to be delivered from, from prison. But he's saying, whether by life or by death, it doesn't matter if I live or die. It doesn't matter if they kill me now. Christ will be magnified through the very death they threaten me with. Think about death for a second. Death is a threat to the average person walking around. If you haven't learned that from the last two years of the fear of death of mankind is incredibly high. It's an amazing thing because it's inevitable, 
but yet there is a fear of death. It's a threat. It's a threat to the unbeliever. And, and it's fearful to most because it threatens to rob you of what you value most. Especially the unbeliever, death is such a threat because it's going to rob you of what you value most, which is you. It's going to take away your life. It's going to take away your goals. It's going to take away your ambition. Everything that you plan, everything that you love, death takes it away if you're an unbeliever. It's over. All the things that you love, all the things that you enjoy, all the things that you put your hope in, end with death. He steals it away. But not Paul. Because Paul valued Christ the most. Not us. Because we value Christ the most. If you don't value Christ the most, you probably don't value him. Now, do we struggle with that in application? Yes. I know I certainly do. So don't look at how I'm acting all the time and say, I thought you valued Christ the most. We are striving. If you weren't here Wednesday night, you may missed a great message on sanctification and how this is going. It's going to take some time and the reasons that it takes time and the reasons that we continue striving. But in our heart, in our soul, death is not a threat. Why? Because we value Christ the most and death is. Cannot take away Christ. Can't steal him. Look at, and then verse 21, a very famous, a very famous verse made, spoken by Paul or written by Paul. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Loaded with deep and practical application of our theology. That's what this verse is. If we can just understand this verse and how it applies to our life, we, we have figured out how to walk as Christians. When you look at that life and death, when you look at life and death to the average person, it, they seem like opposites, right? They seem like enemies, life and death. But here, I, I believe the Holy Spirit is teaching us through Paul's writing that for a Christian, there's actually unity in the two. Because whether by life or by death, Christ will be magnified for the Christian. The next five verses, he unpacks this powerful statement. Look at verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Here's what it means to live is Christ. Notice he says, if I live on in the flesh. Now here's, he kind of makes a, he clarifies this statement. He says, notice, he says, if I live on in the flesh. He's careful to emphasize this point because we will live on either way. We need to remember that. So he is clarifying here that he's talking about living on in this earthly life. So if, so to live on in the flesh is Christ. What does that mean? To live is Christ. But he explains it in verse 22. He explains what it means to live as Christ is actually fruit from my labor. 
So what Paul is saying is, if my flesh, if I continue on here on this world, then Christ will be magnified by the fruit of my labor. If my flesh lives on, my flesh will serve Christ. So that, that's what he's saying. How, how is Christ going to be magnified if I live on in the flesh? I'm going to serve him. Now, I'm going to skip verse 23 for a second. I will come back to it. But to, to, ma- to maintain the train of thought here, I'm going to skip to verse 24, which says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul understands that it is not his time to go to be with the Lord yet. And the reason that it's not his time to go yet is because he's needed here on this earth for the saints. The saints at Philippi, the saints at Galatia, the saints at Corinth, all of these churches that he has planted, all of this work that he has done, he is still needed there. And so it's not his time to go yet. And even us, do you realize as Paul is still alive, God was using him even to communicate to us. That's why I'm preaching through his word, right? Through his letter. It's God's word, but he used Paul still yet to teach us. So Paul's work, basically, his work was not finished. He still had work to do for Christ. So for Paul to live was fruitful labor for your sakes, for the sakes of the saints at Philippi, for the sakes of us. Jesus will be magnified by that fruitful labor. But what is that fruitful labor? Look at verse 25 and 26. He says, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. And your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Okay, remember that statement. Whenever something is of tremendous value to you, Whenever you cherish something because of its uniqueness or its power or its beauty, there is an inevitable longing that you draw others' attention to it so they can share your high regard for it. The purpose of Paul staying here in the flesh is for that very reason. He knows that the fruit of his labor will lead them and even lead us through this scripture To grow in our joy and faith in Christ. That is the purpose of Paul staying here. That is to live in Christ. They will rejoice in Paul because Paul will point them to rejoice in Christ. He says, even even when I come back. And I thought about this. I thought about, do we rejoice when people come and visit? When Don Curran comes, it's been a while since he's been here. But do we rejoice when Don Curran comes and preaches? Or when John Hall comes, I think we're, we're trying to schedule a time where Godwin, our brother that lives in India, he's finally getting to come back. He hadn't been here in quite some time. And if you haven't heard his testimony, it's absolutely incredible um, what he went through. We don't understand persecution in the United States yet. He understands it in India. But we have this rejoicing when they come, Right? Why? Because we get to see them point us to Christ. And I hope that each of you has a 
goal, a purpose, that you would be that for other people. Right? That you would so love Christ and so love His power and His majesty that you would want to share that with others. That you would want other people to see that. Parents, that you would want your children to see that. That you would want to see the magnitude of Christ. You'd want other people to see that. And that's what Paul's saying. So His fruitful labor is for our sakes and for their sakes. So they will rejoice in Paul because Paul will cause them to rejoice in Christ. And that's the amazing testimony of the life when Paul says to live is Christ. To live means that I will teach you and admonish you to see more glory in Christ. To love him more. Honor him more. And if I am successful in that, you will do the same to others. And they will do the same. And Christ will be magnified in this world, right? That's what Paul is saying, to live is Christ. To live is to glorify Christ. To live is to point others to the glory and majesty of Christ. And that's why he's saying to live, that that is a a good thing if he lives. And that's what it means for a Christian to live. If they leave us here, that is our purpose to magnify Christ and to point others to that. Now, we're going to go backwards, back to verse 23. As I said, we're going to see the other side of his statement. Basically, this sermon is broke up, kind of expositing the statement of to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23 says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far Better. Hard pressed between the two. It's like like Paul is, if he has to decide, he doesn't really know which one's better. Which one would I want to do? Which one would I want to choose? I could go with Christ. That's far better. But I'm needed here to magnify Christ. You can see a longing. You can you can when you read this, you can see a longing in Christ or in Paul just to Die and go be with Jesus. And I can understand that. You won't have to fight this flesh any longer when that happens. But he he says this is far better. It's far better to me to go on to be with the Lord. Is that our testimony today? Is that our mind Would I rather leave the things of this world and go be with Christ? Or do I have too much at stake here that I really want to stay here? And what is the reason I don't want to go on to be with Christ yet? Is it because of Paul to live as Christ? Or is it because I have other desires? Earthly desires, selfish desires that I don't want to see end yet. That's a struggle for the Christian. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thought process you need to go through in your mind and determine, am I really, can I really say with Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain? But he says it's better. Better than your life now? Than your friends? Than your family? Is it better than your business that's beginning to take off? Is it better than the retirement that you can enjoy with your grandkids? You've worked all this time and finally I get a little time off. I'm not ready to go be with the Lord yet. I got this, I got this set up. 
got my retirement fund. Or why I have these little children. Is it better? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. A thousand times better. We don't even understand how much better it is to go be with Christ. To die is completely, you will be completely and eternally in the presence of Jesus. That is better. Whatever you think is great here, that is better. For his saints, for you, his saints, the best is yet to come. We've all made jokes about the book, Your Best Life Now. The reality for a lot of the people that have read that book, it's true. Their best life is now. But let me tell you something. As a, If you are a Christian, if you are born again and you believe in Jesus Christ, I promise you your best life is not now. If your best life is now, that means you have hell waiting on the other side. But for the ones who believe in Christ, your best life is to come. I promise And I can say it with full authority based on the word of God. Your best life is to come. Paul's best life is to come. The older you get, the more you realize there's great blessings that we get to enjoy on this earth. I think we appreciate what we have as we grow older. But you also know that no matter how great the blessings are on this earth, We're living on a cursed earth, and no matter how good your situation, there's always heartaches. There's always heartaches. I remember Jack Burwell talking one time. He was out on the street witnessing, and um, he started trying to share the gospel with somebody, and they said, you know what, I don't need that. I'm in a really good place right now, and they named off all that. I got a good job. My family's great. I have everything going. I don't need that. And they were walking off, and he said it just came to him. He said, it won't last. The guy turned around, and he said, it won't last. And we all know this. It won't last. Health fails. Age comes. Problems come. Jobs dry up. Money dries up. Just things happen. We're living in a cursed world. It won't last. But what will last is that life that is to come, that has been promised us. Jesus Christ will last. But to die is for all of that to go away. All of those things that won't last, all of that stuff that is fleeting, and some of them are blessings of God. But all of that is fleeting. All of those things that we find comfort in is fleeting. But to die is for all of that heartache that comes along with it, To be gone. It goes away. It doesn't come back. It will last there. To die is to see Christ in all of his glory. We haven't seen that yet. It's like Paul said, Paul was preaching last week. And you could see his frustration. And I can feel his frustration because no matter what we do, no matter how hard we study the language, To try to come up with the words to proclaim the gospel, it falls short. We can't even begin to use our words and properly get the glory of Christ across. 
We can't do it. We're not even close. I can't even get what I feel the glory of Christ is, and what I feel isn't even close. Why? Because we haven't seen the full magnitude, the full glory of Christ, but we will. And when we die, we get to see that. And we get to see that right then. That is gain. And if we believe that, then no matter how the death comes, we will magnify Christ in our death. Whether it's a 90-year-old who has lived a good long life and can say, Christ has done all the work in me and I will go now to him. He will glorify Christ on his deathbed because Christ has done it all. Or if it's a young man or woman who seem to have so much life in front of them. But they, but they, when they say this life may seem like it's cut short, but there's a better life to come. A young Christian can die at whatever age, but they're a Christian. And they can say, you know what, I know this seems like this is being cut short. And maybe it's sickness. Or maybe it's persecution. Maybe they're at the stake. It doesn't matter. They're saying, when this gets cut... You're going to have heartache. But when that ends, for them, it is gain. The heartache is gone. They know the best is yet to come. In all fleshly death, the Christian will magnify Christ because we know the best is yet to come. Remember that when the trials come. And so that's what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the question here now comes, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do you fear death? Or do you realize that it is a passageway to glory? Do you live for Christ? Do you yearn to see Him magnified? The reality is, I don't know that I always do. I certainly know I always, I don't always live for Him. I don't always yearn to see Him magnified. But I take faith in the fact that He is the one who's working in me to do that. And so there's responses you can have here. You can have a response in that you feel conviction and you think, I, I want to. I want to live for Him. I want to yearn to see Him magnified. And you also, there's also a, a, something that comes up in you, Christian, when you see Him shamed. Do you have that? Do you have this sort of in-burning fire when you see the name of Christ put to shame? You see someone mock Him? And you want to magnify him like you don't know him. You would never say that if you knew who he was. That's our job. And so, no, none of us are doing it perfect. Even the Apostle Paul was not doing it perfect. But there was a there was an indwelling presence who is going to strive, who is going to continue to teach us doing to do it perfect. And that's the Holy Spirit. So let us pray. And let us seek to have this same heart and live our life to magnify the one we love. The way that we saw Paul model it 
because he's worthy to be magnified. And then the question is, are you in that? Are you under that? Do you feel that? Or do you go through the motions because that's what you've always done or that's the way you were raised or that's what seems right? Or do you actually have a passion to see Jesus held up? It's an important question. Do you fear death? If you're a Christian, if you're a professing Christian and you fear death, then you need to really examine why. Why do you fear death? Is it because you love all these other things so much? It's because you love your own life so much? Examine that. Why? Because we don't want to fear death as Christians. Paul didn't. Not only did he not fear death, he welcomed it. He looked forward to it. Why? To die as gain. So let's, as a, just as a people, examine yourself. And we're about to take communion. This is a great time to examine those things. Are you in Christ? And there's people here who have not made any kind of profession of Christ. And it's time for you to examine yourselves. Are you in what, what, how long do you have? We don't know. Death is inevitable. It's coming. He's coming. So let's um, take a time. Repent. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. I promise you he's worthy. I promise he's worthy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you for making yourself known to us, for making yourself available to us. What an incredible blessing it is to know the Lord Jesus. What an incredible blessing it is to have the Holy Spirit guiding us and making, helping us make decisions and helping us to understand your word and just the amazing blessing that you've given us in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would magnify you, that we would magnify Christ, that he would be glorified in all that we do. In his name we pray. Amen.